Jennifer Thompson was a college student living in North Carolina, described as the perfect student, perfect daughter, and even perfect homecoming queen. Her life was forever changed one summer night when a stranger held a knife to her throat and raped her. She was determined to remember every detail of her assailant so that she could later identify her enemy and guarantee imprisonment for the rest of his life. She helped the police develop a sketch. She picked Ronald Cotton out of a lineup. She was calm and confident, and the police even described her as the perfect witness. And although he insisted on his innocence, the power of Jennifer's eyewitness testimony helped convict him and sentence Ronald Cotton to life in prison. And for this, she had no doubt that he was her assailant. Now, if I were to ask you who is the enemy in this story, it would be quite easy, wouldn't it? We would say it's the the person who had assaulted her. And you would be right. You know, everywhere in the world we see enemies around us. And unfortunately, there are some of us who know firsthand what an enemy can do. We see them in the news, we read about them in papers, we... Uh, we see them on, or we hear them on the radio. They're everywhere around us. We know this to be true. We live in a world with enemies, and we are to be on alert for those enemies. And we have to be on guard, and we are to view enemies in a certain way. You know, my daughter, my four-year-old daughter, even knows this truth. Uh, anytime I'm watching TV and she comes in, she'll sit down and she'll watch for a few minutes, and then turn to me and say, "Which one's the bad guy?" Because she wants to know, what person am I not supposed to be rooting for? What's the, who's the enemy in this story? You know, I took her to a movie yesterday, a children's movie. And we were sitting there, and she is looking, and, and she just got this look on her face, and she's seeing every person in their facial expression. And then she looked at, to me and said, that's the bad guy, right? Because she knows that there is a, we live in a world where we have good guys and bad guys. There are enemies around us. You know, there is a saying... And it's even in the Bible. Love your friends and hate your enemy. Have you heard this? The world is rightly, by saying, you know, we should love our friends. Because it is easy to love our friends. Because they love us back. It is easy to care and do things for people who care and do things for us as well. It's just smart living. It's a common and natural thing to do. And that is to love our neighbor and to hate our enemy. And we know the enemies around us. They are those individuals or, or uh, countries who would seek to harm us, who have harmed us, who take our possessions and do assaults on us. They are individuals, strangers in wars. Sometimes our enemies, unfortunately, are those who we know the most. They are parents. They can be brothers and sisters, co-workers, and even friends. And, you know, we even find ways to make our competition, uh, our competitors in sports out to be the enemy, don't we? Because we live in a world of enemies. We need, to, we need to look around and decide who is for us and who is against us. And then we are to respond based on who they are. You know, Jesus talks specifically about this idea of friends and enemies. In Matthew 5, 43, he says, You've heard it said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that, they, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. You see, he causes the sun to rise and set on the evil and 
the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You see, Jesus called Christians to an absolutely radical way of living. It may be the most revolutionary teaching of any religion or religious leader in human history. This, above anything else, distinguishes Christians from non-Christians more than anything that we will ever do. We are to love our enemies. Think of it like this. Helen Lee writes that loving those who love you is not where the power of the Christian witness lies, but it is when we love those who are our enemies, who are difficult for us to love. Well, that is when the true heart of the gospel comes through. You see, love for enemies does not come from the heart at times, but it starts with our will. We have to choose to love those who don't love us back. We have to choose to love those who, unfortunately, have or could do things to us. Now, loving our enemies is deliberately choosing against bitterness and choosing benevolence. It is doing something supernatural rather than what is natural. Loving our enemies means choosing the highest good for them, even when they have showed us some of the lowest evils. Sometimes it may be tough, but it is always seeking whatever is best, even for our enemy. Now, loving our enemies must be described, and it does not mean that we as a society should let criminals run free to do violence on any citizen. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't call the police when robbed. It doesn't mean that we should stand idly by when someone is assaulted. You see, in our passage this morning, Jesus does not deny the existence of enemies. He knew that they existed. He knew what they had done and will do. Jesus is referring only to our reaction, to our response to the enemy. And that is a response of love. Now back to our story. After a year of, after Ronald Cotton's conviction, he met another inmate while serving in prison. His name was Bobby Poole. They looked a lot alike. Poole was serving consecutive life sentences for a series of rapes. He bragged to the other inmates that Ronald Cotton was serving some of his time because he was the one who actually assaulted Jennifer Thompson. A new trial was ordered for Ronald Cotton, and this time they, the jury saw both men. The jury heard both sides of the story, but yet again, this time Ronald Cotton was still found guilty based solely on Jennifer's testimony as an eyewitness. And Ronald was served life in prison. Now, after 11 years, Jennifer Thompson had gone on with her life. She was married and had children. 11 years later, a police detective showed up on her doorstep, knocked and said, Jennifer, I am so sorry to tell you this, but you were wrong. Ronald Cotton is innocent. A new technology has been discovered called DNA, and it conclusively proves that it was not Ronald Cotton, but it was Bobby Poole after all. Now, if I were to ask you again, who is the enemy in this story, it's a little more difficult to say, isn't it? The characters have changed. And the truth is, if we are looking for a nice, comfortable religion that doesn't call for too many demands on our lives, makes us feel better when we're down, and will reserve luxury sweets for us when, in heaven when we die, then we probably shouldn't be one of Jesus' disciples. You see, Jesus, unfortunately, is very demanding on us. He has this crazy notion that we are to love others above ourselves. 
We are to show integrity when no one is looking. We should serve rather than be served. Jesus expects us to follow him in loving our enemies just as he did the same. And we shouldn't be willing to follow unless we're willing for a little discomfort. What does love mean? Well, in this specific instance, in our verse this morning, there's some insight that can be gained. You see, in the Greek language, there are three different types of love. The first Greek word is called eros, which refers to the ascetic or uh, romantic love. It's where we get the word erotic. Eros is a love you feel when you meet someone who is attractive and you're willing to pour out all of your love and affection on that individual. At its best, eros is the love that is so beautiful, but at its worst, it can become selfish and possessive. Now, when Jesus says, love your enemies, he is not referring to this type of love. The second type of love is the word in Greek called phileo, which refers to the affection between friends. It's a brotherly love. Phileo is that good-natured affection that people feel for one another when they, regularly, when they genuinely like each other. And when Jesus said, love your enemies, again, he is not referring to this type of love. Jesus was referring to the third type. It is called agape love. This type of love is understanding. It is creative. It seeks the redemptive goodwill for all people. Agape love seeks nothing in return. And theologians describe this love as the love of God. To love as God loves. Jesus is calling us to this type of love. At this level, we love others not because they are likable, not because... Uh, And not because of what they've done to us, because it hurts. But we are to love them because God loves them. We are not to overlook what has been done, but we are to love. And when Jesus says, love your enemies, he means in agape love. Notice he didn't say like, because that is a difficult thing to do. We are to like them, but he's not calling for that. We We don't get along with everyone. God is calling us to love everyone even when they don't love us. So how do we do this? Well, it's interesting. In Luke's version of this account, of Jesus' statement, we get more insight into what we should do. In Luke 6, 27, it says, But but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who mistreat you. There are many times where the, love, the emotion of love doesn't come. But yet we can still do something. If we don't love our enemies yet, we can still act. And Luke tells us exactly what we are to do. There are three things. We are to do good for the other. In many cases, if we don't feel the emotion of love for our enemy, for anyone, the act of doing something for that person helps facilitate the emotions of love. If we can find ways to do good for our enemies, as Luke tells us, love will come. The second thing that we can do if love is not there yet is that we can begin to bless those who have hurt us, to bless our enemies. When we talk about them to our friends, when we bring them up in our conversations, we should find ways to to work a blessing in as well. When we do this, love will come. The last and final thing that we can do if the emotion of love isn't there yet, is we can pray for our enemy. This is the biggest thing. 
You see, when we are conversing with God, I think many times we view it as a one-way conversation. When we pray to God, let us pray for our enemy. And at the same time, God will pray, will be speaking back into us God's love for that enemy. And hopefully we will be able to love them the way God loves them. Not to bring shame to this person, but to love them the way God does. So how does this, how is this lived out? You know, how can we, you know, we know that we should love our enemies. We know the different types of love. But how do we actually do it? What does it look like in the world? Have you ever heard of the man Nelson Mandela? He spent most of his life in a South African prison under the racism of apartheid. In one of the most amazing transformations in history, he was not only set free, but he became the president of South Africa. Heads of state from all around the world fought to get tickets to his inauguration, and they fought even more for the front row seats, because those were the seats of honor. Do you know who Nelson Mandela invited? He invited the guards of his prison, who had watched over him, who maybe even hurt him. He gave them the seats of honor. That is loving our enemy, is it not? But it goes further. You know, Back to our story with Jennifer. She was shocked when she found out that she was wrong. How could she have made such a terrible mistake? She had stolen 11 years of a man's life that would never be able to be given back. She agonized for two more years on what to do. And she decided to meet with Ronald and ask for his forgiveness. They met at a local church in her neighborhood. Her husband and pastor waited outside. Face to face for the first time outside of the courtroom, Jennifer looked into his eyes and said, I am so sorry. If I spent every day for the rest of my life telling you how sorry I am, it wouldn't even come close to how I actually feel. I don't know if there's anything I could ever do to let you know how sorry I am. Calm and quiet, and for the first time in his life, he speaks to her. He looks at her and says, I forgive you. I am not mad at you. In fact, I never have been. I just want you to have a good life. She was completely shocked. How could someone have forgiven her for what she had done? But he did. And she was now faced with a decision. What does she do now? She finds herself the enemy of the story. She was the victim, but now she is the enemy. And the person that she has wronged has forgiven her. And what does she do? She does the only thing that she can do. She forgives her enemy as well. In the same forgiveness that was shown to her, she passes it along to her enemy. And she writes the man who actually committed the crime and asked for and said, I forgive you. I I can't take away what was done and I am still hurt, but I forgive you. She was forgiven and she could do the only thing she could and that was to forgive others, to show love to her enemy. And you know, as Christians who have been forgiven, we should be willing to do the same. Let's pray. Lord, you have told us to love our neighbors as ourselves, even as you found it in your heart to love us when we were your enemies. Show us how to love those who are against us. Allow us to do good to them, to bless them, and to pray for them, even when they wrong us. May we be as merciful and compassionate as you are and have been to each of us. 
And it is in your name that we pray. Amen.